everyone, welcome to the Curiosity Cast, a place where we explore a variety of topics, meet interesting people, and follow our curiosity wherever it takes us. I'm your host, Allie Merrill, and thanks for tuning in. So today's guest is Manal Azer. She is a registered nurse as well as a consultant in federal health policy. Her background is mostly in geriatric and long-term care, but she's also traveled all around the world with her work and is currently working in a COVID testing facility. Manal is so compassionate and has an admirable drive for her work and to make the world a better place. I loved our conversation and I'm so thankful for her sharing on the podcast and I think you will too. Meet Manal. Well, I'm a first generation American, which is probably the most important thing I can say to kind of paint the picture. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up in a super conservative home with my two parents, my grandmother and an older brother and older sister. Uh, we're from Egypt um, and we are part of a very small population of Egyptians who are Christian rather than Muslim. So um, coming to the States was a, was a great opportunity for us to just be who we are. And that's what I think it was intended to be. But um, yeah, I was, I've been pretty much a nerd my whole life, to be honest. Um, I don't really look the part of a nerd, if you can imagine what that stereotype is. But uh, books have always been my best friends. My brother and sister loved to play together. And so I took to reading the dictionary and finished it by the time I was 13. Um, wow. Always love reading and learning. I, I really get that from my grandmother and my grandfather. So um yeah, my my childhood was like a, a mixed bag of of Egyptian culture trying to fit in with American culture and hmm. um, you know, Catholic school my whole life. Um, everything kind of revolved around this identity of being super strict Christians, which um I'm sure we'll get into it later, but uh didn't quite work for me. But it was, you know, it was a mixed bag of ups and downs, like like a lot of people's childhoods are. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, the best part of all of it for sure was my grandmother. She was the love of my life and she made, she, she was my closest friend and, uh, just an amazing person to be around and a big part of why I ended up doing what I do. Hmm. And, um, I, you may have mentioned it, but were you born in the States or were you born in Egypt? When did you guys move here? So I was born here. Um, okay. Yeah, we were all born in Virginia. I'm Virginia born and raised, so and okay. I'm still here. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You stuck it out. Yeah. Yeah, I imagine that would be really interesting having that blend of cultures as well as the religion part of it too. You know, it's not like you were just you just had the Egyptian culture being raised in America, but in addition to that you were raised in a Christian home, which is sounds like not as common um for Egyptian culture. Was there I just, yeah. Can you maybe talk about that a little bit more? I can't really picture how those two would blend. <laughs> so, um, uh, the, the religion is called Coptic Orthodoxy and it's mm-hmm. a, it's an ancient faith. It's very beautiful, super ritualistic. Every single thing has meaning, um, in the liturgy and all of the different sacraments that are celebrated. Um, there are beautiful churches that are dressed with these gorgeous icons. Um, if you ever Google like Coptic icon, mm-hmm. it, you'll just see some of the most amazing um, paintings you've ever seen. And it's actually the whole story of a person written in one picture. 
uh, which is why we call them icons rather than pictures. But um, yeah, I, it's so in Egypt, actually, I feel like there's there's actually a decent amount of coexisting um, Coptics. Coptic Christians are persecuted. There is a lot of bombings of churches and and worse than that. But um, mm-hmm. for the most part, it's kind of like, and I've spent plenty of time in Egypt. I used to go back every summer and spend it with my grandmother. And then I'd come back for school here. Um, so I really kind of had this like split life. But, you know, in Egypt, you just, if you're a Christian, you go to the Christian stores, you go to the Christian welcoming shops, whatever. And, and that's kind of that's what you do. If you don't want trouble, you just kind of Mm -hmm. stick to what you know works um, and vice versa. So um, it was different coming here because, you know, that, that like, it's just like the most important thing to say about yourself as an Egyptian person who's not Muslim is that you're not Muslim. Mm. And, and so that got challenging when I wanted to be so much else other than just not a Muslim or a Coptic Christian, mm-hmm. um, you know, land of opportunities, but also um, that's what that's what it was meant to be. But my parents really, really just couldn't rip themselves away from the idea that there's one right way to do mm-hmm. life, you know, mm-hmm. um, and that really seeped into every vein of of my upbringing. And it was really hard to break free from that. Hmm. And did you feel that way? The part about it felt like your identity was not being Muslim and, and being Coptic Christian. Did that even feel present in Virginia where there's sort of a a melting pot of people around you? Or did it feel like even in your own kind of family culture that still existed? Well, the thing is, um, like a lot of immigrant groups, we're really good at leaving our home countries to just be together somewhere else. So, <laughs> um, so you know, there is a massive amount of Coptic Christians that, you know, we tend, they're like Egyptians tend to like take over certain areas. So like there's lots of us in New Jersey, <laughs> lots of us in Virginia. So the Coptic community stayed strong. And while that's beautiful in terms of preserving um, faith and culture, it also uh, maybe inadvertently closed off opportunities to blend and learn with the people around us. And mm. there's been some movement toward that recently, I would say. And just, you know, there's a mosque down the street from the mega church where everybody goes in this area. Um, and, you know, could we have conversations? Could we have interfaith dialogues? And some people really don't like that um, mm-hmm. because, you know, for them, they remember things about, they remember things from being in Egypt where, you know, the kids get tattooed really young with a cross on their hand to say like, take my life if you want, but I'm a Christian. You know, it's like Mm -hmm. really a lot of pride associated with what religion you associate with. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes more so than belief, to be honest with you, it's like more of a bloodline thing. Um, So Um, Yeah, I think I think when in the States, there's a little more openness, but it happens very slowly and over time. And there has to be a desire and an openness to to learn about the people around you and not just stay in your bubble, which Mm -hmm. um, that varies from family to family. So as you got older, when did you realize that maybe you didn't fully believe everything your parents raised you to believe? or, Or did you kind of always feel that inside? You just 
you know, you went along with it because it was with your family. How did that, how did that go? So this is the part of the story you've probably heard before, which is that I went to college and went wild. Um, <laughs> I had freedom for the first time. I was one of the, you know, I was the first person in my family to go to college and, um, you know, like that's just not something, you know, my, my father finished eighth grade. I think my mom did a couple courses after high school. Um, okay. so college was like this, Thing they wanted us to do but didn't really know anything about and for me that was my opportunity to see something else in the world um, mm-hmm. all the stuff I'd been reading about books my whole life and I'd just kind of been in Virginia and in Egypt um, so like I think I mentioned I was in Catholic school my whole life like up until um, high school through high school and so between spending my weekends at church and then going to Catholic school it was just like a lot. And, um, I just remember feeling like the standards are so high, the requirements are so much, and, um, I couldn't ever really quite get it all right, which is painful for a perfectionist, Mm -hmm. um, a recovering perfectionist. And, um, so when I went to, (laughs) had the opportunity to go to school, to college, I applied far away. You know, I, I remember I applied to UCLA, Yale and Maryland, and I got into all three, but I just couldn't figure out um, how to make it work at the two schools that were farther away, uh, financially. So I, you know, I went to Maryland on full ride and, and I really ended up loving it there. Um, and that was kind of my opportunity to see the stuff I'd seen on TV and, you know, Mm -hmm. like learned about and heard about, um, that people can really live in so many different ways other than the super structured way that I grew up. And, Um, I got a little out of hand for a a little while, uh, but I, you know, I really did love learning and I really did love the opportunity of being able to, um, just like, not just in school, but just see what's out there in the world that I could really Mm -hmm. do something. Um, I could really do something different. And it was really my grandmother that had that that faith in me that like, you could really do something special before you leave this earth, (laughs) you know, try, just go for it, think about what you would want that to do. And that just kind of, it just had that really deep down in my gut. And I held on to it when things got very challenging and I still do. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm sure that others can kind of, um, that resonates, you know, that, that, that feeling that like, you, there's something I'm supposed to be doing here. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. and I could do it. I could do it. If I focus, I could do it. If I try, I could do it. If I don't cringe at the first sight of pain, you know, like what could I really accomplish before I leave the earth? And mm-hmm. so I really just held on to that. I took like 21 courses every single semester oh or not, not courses, not courses, <laughs> credits, um, credits. Yeah. Yeah. And I, anyway, long story short, I ended up graduating four years later with two math two degrees and three minors um because I had just you know a full ride is like you could take as many classes as you want so I was like I'm gonna get my money's worth you know wow yeah so and you were yeah that I mean that is a that's hard work (laughs) yeah (laughs) so tell me what you tell me what your degrees are in oh gosh all right um so I studied I made my own degree in federal health because I always had this interest in healthcare and I wanted to understand how policies were made. So I got to design my own degree in federal healthcare policy. And then my second degree was in communications with a focus on PR, public relations. Okay. And then my, my minors are hysterical. Um 
<laughs> Chinese poetry. Okay. Jewish studies and um, studio art. <laughs> so, wow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you weren't kidding when you said you like books and reading the dictionary. <laughs> yeah. But I got to tell you, there's this, I've never been inclined towards science ever in my life. So, you know, the, huh. the art, you know, my grandmother is a professional artist. Um, I think that's, I always had a little bit of that in me. So my studio art classes, man, I remember them. I just used to love splashing paint all over the walls and doing whatever and Mm. like they were just you know the Chinese poetry classes again it was like that lens into this other world Hmm. this other way of living and and how cool is that you know to go with poetry it's like you go straight to the heart of what they matter about because people don't write about what they don't care about you know so I remember just being really fascinated by those classes um do you speak Chinese no (laughs) no no, I read translated versions and then just like, okay. did my best. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Wow. <laughs> That's brave. I'm impressed. Uh, did you come out of college and just like take one really long nap? <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> I actually signed on to a full-time job. Um, I actually, my last year of school, I did an internship in behavioral health care. Okay. Um, and it was it was a lobbying, advocacy, and policy type group. And a mentor there suggested to me, you know, I have a knack for this kind of thing. Why don't I actually use my federal health policy degree and link up with a a healthcare policy firm? Mm -hmm. Um, So before I even graduated, I'd already done a year of professional work and then signed on with a company that I ended up staying there for 10 years doing healthcare policy work. Um, So I didn't take any breaks. I was ready to start understanding, making things happen and trying to help. Okay. So you mentioned your grandma. Can you talk a little bit about your relationship with her and how she influenced you? I know you mentioned, you know, going to college and kind of encouraging you to make that splash and have an impact, find your place in the world. But what was your relationship like and what made it so close? Well, my grandmother, um, she, well, I should start by saying she was like less than five feet tall. She was just this tiny force okay. of nature. <laughs> yeah. And, um, I don't, I, I, I can count on one hand the times when she didn't have a smile on her face. Um, mm. she, she really raised me and my brother and sister. Uh, my dad and mom both worked full time. They were new in the country and you know, that was their hustle. They were trying to raise three kids and keep a roof and all of that kind of stuff. So they were really pretty absent. And when they were around, um, it wasn't, you know, I've never really had strong relationships with them in the sense of um, affection and, and like deep conversations. It's not really, you know, my grandmother was the one that was there after school. And, you know, she, when my mother and sister went to school and I wasn't ready yet because I was younger, Um, we cook, I remember like cooking in the kitchen with her and folding laundry with her. And she taught me about like, she had really strong faith, Mm -hmm. but it was real. There was something different about the way she practiced faith that she found joy in it. And it was relational. It wasn't, um, compulsory. Mm -hmm. Um, and she just really, you know, she had all the time in the world to, listen to my stories and tell me stories, um, and talk to me about her life growing up. I mean, she was 
born in 1918. Imagine the things she had seen and um, she lived to be a hundred. So she had a lot to share. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But she was just, she's like, I would say my grandmother was the primary source of unconditional love for me, you know, in a house with super strict rules um, and, and a lot of them, it's kind of like, if you break the rule, the love goes away. And when you're doing the rules, you get the love. So my grandmother wasn't that way. Mm-hmm. She was just constantly compassionate, relentlessly compassionate. And I really learned from that. I, I took it to heart and, um, it helped me to understand that, um, worth doesn't, isn't, you know, we're more than our actions, which is something we hear a lot, but when someone actually acts that out for you in your own life, it's incredibly powerful. Um, Mm. So she, yeah, she was just, um, you know, she, it's hard to find the right words to say about her because she meant so much to me. I'm not sure I can. Um, Mm -hmm. But she was, you know, she didn't speak or write English. So we only communicated in Arabic and Um, I can remember studying for hours and hours and she would just kind of like slide snacks next to me when it had been a while (laughs) or, you know, um, come rub my shoulders when I was really struggling on math stuff because I was notoriously bad at math. Um, And it was just that presence there. We also, my grandmother and I, we shared a room um, almost my whole life. She was was like my first and longest roommate. (laughs) Um, So my, you know, we, yeah, we shared a room and at least a bathroom all the way through high school when I left for college. Um, Wow. So she's just, she's, I did my whole life with her until Mm -hmm. she was gone. Wow. That's such a special relationship to have that it, it sounds really rare, especially, you know, rooming together. I feel like you get to see a different side of somebody when you're not, you're not only seeing them when they're put together, when they decide to come over, but you're seeing them all the time and to still have, that view of her is really, really cool to hear. So you mentioned that she really inspired what you do now. Um, what What is that? What do you do now? Well, I'm a, I'm a registered nurse. Um, I work. I have a couple jobs. <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> I'm not surprised. <laughs> I, um, I still have my one foot in the policy side of the world. Um, okay. So I work a lot with CMS the CDC, USAID, um, Agency for Children and Families, so federal healthcare programs. Um, and then my other job is that I work as a bedside nurse at an urgent care and primary care center. Um, and right now, of course, we're doing um, testing and I'm working in the COVID tents. Mm, okay. Um, and then as a side hustle, I also um, mentor nurses at a local um, nursing home. Okay. So you got into the policy field directly after college. Um, I think you also mentioned in a previous conversation we had that you worked, you worked in a nonprofit medical clinic, you've worked overseas. Mm -hmm. I mean, you've done a lot of different things. Can you Mm -hmm. share some about, some about your path and some about your international work that you did? Sure. Yeah. So I ended up at that medical clinic. They're kind of tied together. Um, Okay. I didn't want to go to Sunday school anymore, which is like a, you know, terrible thing in the house I grew up in. And I remember my father said, 
you don't have to go to Sunday school, but you can't just be idle with your time. And so I got quickly into community service, which um, really met a need that I wanted. Like it really, I found a a passion for that really quite quickly. Mm -hmm. So I started working at um, a clinic that was associated with the church where we would help newcomers from Egypt uh, who didn't have health insurance with their basic medical care. And I started that when I was like 14 or something. And I think I, I actually only stopped like two years ago. So wow. Yeah. (laughs) Or yeah, maybe two, three years ago. So actually I'm just realizing with you now that I actually served in that clinic for about 20 years. Um, Wow. And it kind of, you know, the clinic had a couple different branches where they did local service and then overseas community service. And so I took a couple opportunities to go on mission trips to do service overseas. So we went to, um, the one that resonates the most with me is the one we went to Zambia and the DR Congo, Mm -hmm. um, to work with HIV positive patients and, and kind of work on their physical infrastructure, talk to them about healthcare things, and then also just, um, you know, share the love of God with them. And that was really, those are really fun trips. Um, Mm -hmm. I got more clinical on some other trips. I went to Costa Rica to do a, a, a service learning pro- a service project um, with mothers who were making decisions about their pregnancies. Okay. Um, and then in most recently, I went to Jordan where we worked with the Ministry of Health to set up two more hemodialysis clinics um, for patients in East Amman because they were traveling like three, four hours a day to get to hemodialysis. And they were doing that three times a week. So it's just like, a, it was just wow. really, um, they needed to expand their capacity. So we got to go there and um, help them, help them set up some new, more clinics. Mm-hmm. Um, but it all kind of stretched out of <laughs> this Mission Life Center, which is the clinic that I started volunteering in. I eventually became a nurse in, and then I graduated to becoming the executive director of it for two years. Um, and that whole time just serving the uninsured population in Northern Virginia. Okay. So in your time spent overseas, did that change your direction at all for your career of what you saw over there and what you experienced and how it was different from healthcare in America? You know, the thing about all the service opportunities overseas is uh, a patient's understanding of their own life and their situation and their inevitable mortality is much more accepted than in the States. And mm-hmm. I was really drawn to that. Like, we're not good as Americans at realizing that a day will come when we, we're no longer alive. Um, mm-hmm. We like to think I could get a, I could get a month if I do this, or I could, if I do that, maybe I'll live longer. And the goal is always longer, more extra. Um, overseas, there was more radical acceptance of whatever was happening, whether it was an HIV patient or a hemodialysis patient. And I remember being so moved by the joy that that brought, the freedom it brought them to not have to hustle for another week or two that Mm -hmm. um, would be so painful. And so um, 
not worth it in a lot of ways. Um, and that really drew me to hospice when I came home. And I think, you know, I, I'm not currently practicing in hospice because I had to take a bit of a break from it when my own grandmother died and I was her hospice nurse, but I'm certain I will go back there because there's really, you know, like the, being overseas and having this awareness of, you know, life is temporary mm-hmm. and there can be so much joy at the end. I wanted to bring that home. I wanted to undo this very Western way of thinking that more is better all the time. And the only place I could find to do that clinically was in hospice. So you served as your grandma's hospice nurse. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) What was that like caring for her after all of those years of her caring for you? Um, Hard. It was Mm -hmm. really hard. It was hard and I would not have had it any other way. There's, um, it really, it was just about her, you know, it wasn't about me Mm -hmm. and there's no one else she would have wanted in those very intimate moments, um, than someone that she knew and loved and that knew her and respected her dignity and her Mm -hmm. modesty. (laughs) She was very modest. Um, (laughs) I couldn't have ever entrusted that to anybody else. And I would have never, you know, um, it's, it's what she would have wanted and it's what I wanted to do for her. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, it's, it's recent for me, so I'm, you know, but it's a beautiful gift. I mean, she gave me the beautiful gift of raising me and I gave her the beautiful gift of being there when she went home. So, Mm. um, I, there are, it's, you know, I, the grief is real and it doesn't go away. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but it was all worth it. It was a hundred percent worth it. Mm-hmm. Was she, was she ready to go? Was she, <laughs> or what was her perspective yeah. on that? Yeah. I think my grandmother was born ready to go. Um, <laughs> she, it was a big part of why, you know, when she did get sad or upset, it was only about one topic and it was her husband. She lost her husband early and she um, just loved him so much. And, um, you know, it was strange because even in her very later years, like in her 90s, she started to lose a little bit of her memory mm-hmm. um, and dementia is ultimately um, what took her life. But um, even in her nineties, when she like, didn't know what season it was or what was really happening somehow on the, the day that we commemorate her husband's death, she cried every year. And I have no <laughs> idea how she knew it was that day, but, um, it was the only thing that really ever made her deeply sad. Mm-hmm. And it's the only time I would see her cry. And even when she was crying, she would smile. And I remember that about her too, that like, um, we're not meant to shy away from our pain. You know, it's part of being human. And I remember learning that from her. Hmm. Um, but I forgot what you asked me. I'm so sorry. Oh, no, no, I was, I mean, you answered it. I was just asking about if she was ready. Yeah. I, I mean, she was a hundred, but yeah. Um, yeah, just kind of what that end of life was like with her. And it sounds like she was at peace with that. Yeah. I mean, I remember being torn within myself because she was really solid till about 96, 97. And those last three years, um, she couldn't feed herself. She really lost control of a lot of things, um, until the end. And it was really just 
it, it I I loved taking care of her every moment. Mm-hmm. Like even when it was awful, I loved it because I loved her. But I just the suffering part of it was that I know she wouldn't didn't want it. Right. And I didn't understand um why it had to go on so long. But looking back, I can also see that, you know, the dying process usually takes several days. So um the decline happens gradually over the course of like two or three days. And mm-hmm. it wasn't the case with my grandmother. She actually started her dying, actively dying and died in the same day. And I think that was a gift too. Mm-hmm. Um, she, you know, she might've been declining those years before, but I have to hope that she had some joyful moments in there, whether it was mm-hmm. seeing her, she, you know, she got to be a great grandma um, and she, got to see lots of things, you know, the family just, our family just kept growing and, um, spending, we kept spending time together. And, you know, maybe the lesson of it was that I got to learn what it's like to serve when it really, really hurts. Hmm. Um, but there's a lot of lessons that came out of those last three years. I remember hating them while they were happening, but I'm glad (laughs) that we had them. Right. And you, I mean, you were a hospice nurse before she needed hospice, right? Mm -hmm. And so did that having gone through that experience yourself, did that change how you approached hospice? I know that you took a break from it, but even just your perspective or philosophy on hospice care, did that change having experienced it yourself and seeing what she went through on a really personal level? It just made me wish and hope that more people can get onto hospice sooner. Mm -hmm. It made such a big difference. I mean, it's like even really simple things. Like, did you know that if you die in your home, at least in the state of Virginia, and you're not on hospice, that the police have to come and do an investigation. No. Can you imagine losing your loved one? No. And the first person to knock on your door is a cop that's asking you questions because it's their duty. It's just like even simple things like that. We got to sit with her as long as we wanted. Um, You know, she had all of her care in the home. We didn't have to take her to you know, no unnecessary hospital visits, no, you know, everyone came to the house. She got to be where she wanted to be. Um, And, you know, a lot of people who don't get onto hospice end up dying in a hospital setting, which is heartbreaking. Um, Mm -hmm. It's heartbreaking for the staff. Like I see it as a nurse. Um, It's heartbreaking for the family and certainly for the person. Very few people want that, want that ending. Um, So, it just made me love hospice more. And I remember the thing that I haven't really been able to talk about it too much yet, but um, I was really surprised with myself that I, even with my training as a nurse and as a hospice nurse, I couldn't see that my grandmother was dying. Um, Mm. I couldn't see it. and, And her other, like the hospice staff had to say to me, like they handed me a stethoscope and they made me take her vital signs Mm-hmm. And then they wrote them down and made me acknowledge, like, I couldn't process what was right in front of me because, mm-hmm. um, and this is why we don't operate on our own family members, right? <laughs> um, right. When it's happening to the person you love more than anyone in the world, you can't see straight. Um, mm-hmm. And I remember that. I remember being so certain that they were wrong. Um, even as I looked at her, you know, her mottled skin and her, and I was counting her respirations and, and just thinking like, no, no, she's, she's okay. She's still, (laughs) she's fine. You know, don't, Mm -hmm. um, and, and that was, 
I'm, I'm a realist. Like I don't, <laughs> I'm very practical. I, mm-hmm. so, so it stunned me that someone like me couldn't just couldn't process what was happening right in front of them. Wow. That would be really, that would be really difficult. I mean, and, and it sounds like it was good that those other nurses were there too, to sort of help you through that so that you could recognize that it was time. But I don't think I realized that there were specific signs that somebody has sort of started the process of dying when you were talking about that just a couple of minutes ago, how it usually takes a few days for that to happen. I kind of thought, well, isn't it, you know, isn't it years of, like you said, decline and kind of going through that process of just their health getting worse? I don't think I realized that it was so specific that you could see that. And I'm I'm completely not in the healthcare realm. I'm not a nurse. I've not <laughs> been exposed to that. So that's probably a very simple concept uh, on your end. But um, I guess that's how, how people know that they're close. Is that, I mean, is that right? Yeah. I mean, I think we tend to hear like a few different types of stories. There's either like the sudden death, you know, the unfortunate accident, the scary mm-hmm. thing that, you know, that scares a lot of us. Um, and then we hear the story about like, they just went home in their sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, but really it, it's, it's, Active dying is a is a clinical term, and it's it's a process. The body doesn't just turn off like uh like the power went out. Um, it shuts down systematically and strategically, um, and it's very calculated. And mm-hmm. you can watch it happen to the person and to the body. Um, mm. So yeah, it 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 varies how long it takes different people, but mm-hmm. um, it is yeah, it's absolutely a it's a it's a part of life. <laughs> mhm. So, in your mind, what are the most important aspects of hospice care that you'd like to see implemented that maybe aren't the norm right now or and can you know, can that improve in American American hospice care or do you feel like it's pretty well done already? Um, I think there's a lot we could learn from hospice and actually Mm -hmm. we, we do a good job once you're on it. The the tricky part is from the policy side of the house right now to get on hospice in the U S you have to, you have to sign off on not doing anything else. So if you're on chemo and you want to get on hospice because you know that death is imminent, you have to stop chemo. And I think that makes it a lot harder. That's just like one example. It makes Mm -hmm. it a lot harder for someone to, it's a bigger decision that way. You know, it's like I'm officially giving up is how Americans would tend to talk about it. Mm -hmm. Um, And that does make it a more challenging, permanent, heavy decision. But what hospice is intended to do is provide supportive services to both the dying person, the ill person, and the family around them and the caregivers so that they can maximize the quality of life at the end of life. That's the Mm -hmm. goal, right? So it's not just for that person. Um, The family can get engaged in counseling. There's um, respite care, which allows caregivers to take breaks. Um, and someone will come sit with their loved one in the home or wherever they are. Um, there's music therapy, pet therapy, uh, lots and lots, you know, tons of things are included, encompassed mm-hmm. in, in pain management for sure. Um, 
But to say to someone to get that package of care for yourself and your family at this stage in your life, you have to stop going to chemo. Right. Is heavy. People wait. They wait it out. They wait. Like you can be on hospice up to six months. Most people in the States are on it for less than one week. Wow. So, I mean, imagine that in your own world, having one week to process and feel supported before losing your loved one versus six months, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think that's one policy thing that we're itching to change and CMS has started trying to change it. There's a model called Medicare Care Choices and it kind of, it allows you to get that supportive care while still having your chemo or your other treatments still continue. Okay. And okay. and it's already shown that people will sign on to hospice sooner and start taking the benefits, taking advantage of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of, <clears throat> that's from like the policy side, but I think there's a lot we can learn from hospice and in, implement it even in like other settings, right? Mm-hmm. So hospice is all about who is this person in front of me what are they about? What matters to them? And how can I make that happen? How can I facilitate that for them and their family? And really, all I just said is what we, this, this phrase we throw around called person-centered care that, you know, we're supposed to be doing in the primary care setting and in the hospital setting and everywhere, you know, we're supposed Mm -hmm. to be, it's supposed, that's what healthcare is meant to be. It's, you have to understand the person in front of you and what their goals are, and then you can figure out what a treatment would be appropriate. Um, and that's so different than the way we do healthcare. We do healthcare like I like I see strep, I treat strep, I'm done. You mm-hmm. know, it's like we want protocols. It's like an assembly and, line. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's protocols. I mean, and yeah. we do, we follow protocols and they save lives. Protocols save lives. And I'm all for protocols, but not at the you know, especially at the end of life, not, I don't, I wouldn't pick a protocol over quality of life. Hmm. Um, and those decisions really have to be driven by the person. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a lot we can learn from hospice. I think it's beautifully done. I've seen and facilitated some amazing ways to memorialize a person that's, you know, going to move on and leave earth. And um, it's really more helpful for the family than the patient themselves. The patients tend to be under to understand what's happening to them hmm. and accept it. Um, the family struggles and the longer a family is on hospice, the better the outcome and the more, more willing they are to lean into the grieving process. Hmm. Um, and that makes a huge difference because because it's a, it's it's certainly an option to just shove your grief down and not deal with it, um, right? But then, what quality of life will you have? Right. And when will that resurface? And it just carries on, you know. Hmm. Well, thanks for sharing all of that. I yeah, I don't know much about that myself. I mean, my grandma passed away a little over a year ago now, and but she was in a home for her end of life, and that that ended up being a really good thing for her. But I think it was like a hospice house. So she experienced hospice care for the end of her life. And it's, you want those people to be taken care of and you want to have it be peaceful and, you know, have that time, like you said, for the people who are still here after they're gone, um, to have that care and like that preparation 
feels really important. Yeah. Um, well, the time that we're in now, just to kind of change tracks a little bit <laughs> uh, with COVID um, and everything going on with that, how has that affected your nursing world and what you've done? Has your track changed at all since the start of COVID? Oh, man. Um, oh, no, you know, I, I'm someone who's drawn to the need, you know, mm-hmm. so for me, I'm in the right place at the right time. I'm exhausted, <laughs> but, but I wouldn't, this is my duty. This is, this is what I've been called to do. And I'm not going to stop until we're done. <laughs> um, mm. So it, it hasn't really changed it. It's been heartbreaking to see sudden devastation that, you know, like what we talked about before, like with the, you didn't see it coming kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. That's been really hard to see over and over, especially when I know there's, you know, when I've seen it happen in such a more comfortable environment. So um, it's hard to see that, but um, you know, my, my motto right now, honestly, for like, I'm just fatigued on every level, but I have, um, a mentor that always says to me when the love runs out, make some more. Um, and I'm just holding on to that. Like when the <laughs> compassion runs out, make some more, like we got to keep going, <laughs> you know, um, and, and make some more could look like a lot of different things. It could look like a self-care day so that I have some energy to give at my next Mm. shift. It could look like um, throwing a prayer into the wind and hoping for the best before a code happens. It could be, it could be anything. It looks different for everybody, but um, Mm -hmm. that's kind of my motto for getting through these days. Yeah, that seems like really good advice. And, and like you said, you can kind of swap out the word for whatever it is that you are feeling at that time. If the love or compassion or whatever it is runs out, we can keep going because we have to keep going in some ways. Um, Yeah. There's not an option. And I'm so grateful for people like you who know you're a nurse, you know how to deal with this, you you know, you're working really hard and I'm not very helpful because I don't have any, I'm not in healthcare, but um, what you guys are all doing is so important and the rest of us just have to do our job at following <laughs> the recommendations being sent that, to us. So, and, and that is doing something, you know, right. I hear that a right. lot. I, I have to tell you, Ali, I hear that a lot. Like yeah. you're doing all this. I'm not doing anything, but you are. Mm-hmm. Um, if you stay home, I don't have to code you because you accidentally got COVID. Mm-hmm. You know, if you take care of the people around you and you take care of yourself and you, shine some kind of light in your community or in your own home. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what you're called to do. Like my, my calling just happens to be a little more obvious right now, but it doesn't mm-hmm. make, make it more important. Yeah. So it sounds like you have worked in, are you still working in COVID te- testing tents? And mm-hmm. you are, okay. What are, can you describe what that's like if somebody hasn't gone to get tested yet? Yeah. Um, it's like a really not fun McDonald's drive through. So um, we have, we, we have appointments. We do everything by appointment and a car will come scoot up to us and we'll take your vital signs while you're in your car, ask you questions about symptoms and things like that. Um, it's me and one other colleague. We go out together and we're in this full, the full gab that you see all over mm-hmm. the news and stuff. So face shield and 95 goggles, hairnet, 
um, a gown and gloves. Um, and we just get that information and then the fun part happens where we, um, there's a few different swabs. There's like a throat swab, a nasopharyngeal swab and a nasal. So we do the nasal swab. Um, so we just, it, it'll, it probably, I've heard it feels like we're inside your brain, but we're not. We're actually like an mm-hmm. inch and a half up your nose. Um, <laughs> and we go up both nostrils for 10 seconds each, kind of make you tear up a little bit. And then we send you home on your way and call you in a, mm. Right now, it's like three days till we get the test result. Okay. That's it. It's pretty, it's pretty quick. I mean, we do mm-hmm. a car every five minutes. And, and how, what's the feeling of most people that come to get tested? It's kind of shifted. So when uh-huh. we started in April, there was a lot more fear and anxiety and questions um, and panic. I would, you know, it was a lot more tense. And we were more tense too. <laughs> right. Um, and it was the majority of people we were testing were symptomatic and wanted to know if it was COVID. Okay. And then as we moved through the summer, a lot of it shifted. So now there's a lot of asymptomatic and they want to know if they've had COVID because of contact tracing or they know someone near them had it. Okay. And then the other thing we're seeing is that they need to confirm, a lot of people need to confirm they don't have COVID. Mm-hmm. Either if it's to go back to work or to have a um, a surgery, an elective surgery that had been put on hold. So the need for testing has kind of trans trans like evolved along with the summer. Um, okay. Yeah. And so I I feel like from my perspective, when this all started, everyone was you know thanking nurses and people who are first responders, like, thank you so much and really putting out support for people in those roles. Have you felt that shift as well, especially now that it's become more politicized than it was at the beginning? Yeah. And it's painful to be honest. It's it's Uh disheartening. Like I remember, um, you know, like Starbucks was giving out free coffee and North Face gave 50% off of their stuff. And like free donut there was just like this overwhelming amount of 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 camaraderie and Mm -hmm. support around us banners signs people clapping um and then as things started to open and it and things people got more used to just staying home and it felt a little bit more like the norm Mm -hmm. and the politics started playing in now it's like I'm just doing double the work with none of the things. So mm. it's been very hard. Like for us, this started in March, right? So right. March, April, you know, the gratitude was great. It really kept us going. May, eh, okay. June, July, August, and everyone forgot. Like it's like mm-hmm. everyone, just give me my answer and, and do it faster. And we're just back mm. to, it's been very demanding, very challenging. And um, I remember... I remember in the beginning when people would say, thank you, I I kind of like shied away at it, you know, like, Mm -hmm. I don't know how to take that. Thanks. I'm doing my job. I'm doing my calling, my duty. There's not any ever thought in my mind that I'm going to stop doing this. So don't thank me. Just, Mm -hmm. you know, don't thank me. Um, And now when I hear it, I'm like, oh, you know, that might, that might get me through another, the next half hour of my shift. Mm. It really might. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, everybody, if you're hearing this, thank <laughs> healthcare workers. Well, thank you so much because it is, and I'm, you know, I'm glad I haven't had to be treated for it, but man, 
for everybody who is, and even just people who don't have COVID, the amount of extra protocols, like you said, and PPE you have to wear and shifts and like covering for people who are sick. There's a lot of burden put on you guys right now. And that's a lot. Yeah. And to do it for an extended amount of time, I'm, I'm impressed and super grateful that you just keep going. So thank you for continuing to make more love and make more compassion. Uh, um, so what do you do for self-care? You mentioned that just a bit of saying maybe making more compassion looks like taking a self-care day. What do you do for yourself to keep going, keep waking up, keep having energy and having that compassion for others? Yeah, for me, it's pretty generic. Um, it, you, I mean, I exercise. I don't mm-hmm. miss my workouts. It's really important for my mental health. Um, but they've pivoted a little. So when I'm like running as hard as I can, my adrenaline is still up. And I found that I need to find things that make me have less adrenaline. So right, okay. it's more walking than running now mm-hmm. to help me wind down. Um reading really, really helps. I'm in the, I'm, I've just like gotten so lucky to read three great books in a row. So they really, really help me with, um, perspective and just helping me escape to someone else's world for a little while. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I mean, sometimes it's just watching Indian matchmaker on Netflix because <laughs> why not? So good. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes you just need that yeah Uh. yeah um and then the other thing I that's like game nights have been really fun it's fun Mm -hmm. to actually put some brain power into something um I'm recently engaged so oh um, congratulations thank you yeah I don't know if I had been when we last spoke yeah um, I don't know if we, I don't know. I don't think we touched on that topic. So <laughs> yeah. So even just celebrating, um, just finding small things to celebrate, like yeah. not, not busying, not being busy all the time, but rather mm-hmm. just, um, you know, like we were talking about like, how's your day? I was like, well, the sun is shining today, which right. it hasn't for three <laughs> days. So that's right. enough for me to say I'm having a good day. Like really, mm-hmm that's a, that's a gift. That's a blessing. Mm-hmm. And just paying attention, just paying attention is the best form of self-care that I have right now. Hmm. So what do you see? I would say maybe COVID aside, cause this is such a strange time right now, but what do you see for yourself and your future and moving forward? What would you like to do next? Oh, and maybe that's a hard question right now because <laughs> of COVID. I, it's kind of like, the opposite of what you were just saying of being present and in the moment. So yeah. if you're kind of like, no, I'm just plugging ahead, not yeah. thinking about what's next. That's also fine too. I just know that you are, you're driven and you've done a lot. So I'm just curious what you're up to. You know, I have to tell you, Allie, it's a really interesting, you're, you're spot on because my personality and who I am, like I'm 34 and I've had, I've done all the things, right? Mm-hmm. Like already. And it's very uncommon for me to not have an answer to that. But mm-hmm. what I've really, really, what I have learned um, is that nothing, like, nothing, I don't know what's going to happen. Um, mm-hmm. And losing my grandmother reminds me that. And COVID is reminding me that. Um, 
and rain for seven days in the middle of July reminds <laughs> me that. Um, so I'm thankful to be here and I'm surprised I don't have an answer for you, but I'm also mm-hmm. kind of good with it. I'm really totally, good Totally, totally. Yeah. I, yeah. I can completely relate to that because that's exactly where I am. And it's like years of pushing myself and wanting to do better and wanting to be, you know, whatever it is. Um, This time for me has felt the same way, which is why I thought, well, maybe I shouldn't ask that question because I know how I feel. And I don't want to be asked that question right now because I want to just be able to be okay with, no, this is where I am. And it feels really good to just sort of be and not think three years in the future and five years in the future and have all these goals. I mean, they're still in my head and I, yeah, and I'm sure they are for you too, but not have this like checklist or race of getting to the next thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, there's goals and there's ideas. Mm-hmm. Well, there's ideas that you could decide I'm going to make that a goal. And then there's plans to make the goal happen. Right. And for me, it's like, I have, I still have my goals Mm -hmm. Um, usually I have a plan to get there by now. Um, Mm -hmm. but for me, this is a great time to sit with that thing that my grandmother always helped me find that, Mm -hmm. that thing that I know I'm going to do something before I leave this earth and knowing like, okay, I still feel that in there. I can still tap that, tap into that and know it's there. Mm -hmm. That that's enough. Like, I don't need to know what or how or when or why it's just, I will. And mm-hmm. I will when I'm supposed to. And in the meantime, pay attention. I love that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that that's a good place to end. I feel like we covered a lot today. Um, and I really just, I love hearing your perspective. And you are very inspiring too, to just keep, just kind of keep going and keep pushing and every day is a new day. So thank you so much for sharing about your life with me. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining me for this episode of the Curiosity Cast. For more content and episodes, you can visit www.thecuriositycast.com or follow us on Instagram at the Curiosity Cast. Stay curious.